VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, June the 2nd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer. We're looking forward to speaking with you this morning on a topic of your choosing. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. All right, fingers crossed. We see young Alex Noak in the lineup again for the Colorado Avalanche in game number two versus the Edmonton Oilers. Yet another bleary-eyed Patty Daly tomorrow morning, I suppose. Here we go. And hopefully, I got an email from someone uh, overnight dismayed that their child's sports day is going to be canceled for the second straight day. So it's pretty misty and dreary and chilly out there. So hopefully your sports day gets going sooner than later. All right, curiously. So I heard a story in the VOC Morning Show. Linda Swain interviewed Peggy Gibbons from Mount Pearl. She's been living in Toronto for a long time, but she's from Mount Pearl. And she's been auditioning for Jeopardy over the years. And she finally got the call. She's going to make her appearance on the program on Wednesday, the 15th of June. And I heard that while I was looking at some Today in History kind of stuff. It was Today in History in 2004 that Ken Jennings began his 74-game winning streak on Jeopardy, won over $2.5 million in that particular run, and, of course, came back for some Tournament of Champions stuff and the like so good luck to peggy gibbons on jeopardy do you watch jeopardy dave i do every now and then you know it doesn't make me feel very bright when i come out the other side but anywho here we go so lots of talk about vaccinations and yes i haven't mentioned it here on the show monkeypox and the smallpox vaccination the first smallpox vaccination in north america was administered today in history in 1800 in this province, in Newfoundland. And another really curious one. This is uh, 126 years ago today. Electrical engineer and an Italian inventor, Guglielmo, how do you say that? Marconi. Marconi applied for the first ever patent for a system of wireless communication. He's generally considered the inventor of radio. Shared the 1909 Nobel Prize in Physics for contributions to the development of wireless telegraphy. So the, today in history, he made that first application in 1896. It's a curious story. We all know how it, how it ends. So he was born into a wealthy family in 1874. And at the age of 20, he started to noodle around and experimenting with wireless telegraphy. Here's a good one. He failed the entrance exam at the University of Bologna. So working throughout, he makes his way to St. John's and Signal Hill, the closest point to Europe, and was having a hard time floating his antenna, basically because of the high winds. So working through it for a couple of weeks, then eventually on the 12th of December of 1901, received the first wireless transmission from Europe. Just barely heard the pip. 2,100 miles from the transmitter, and that was December 12, 1901, at Signal Hill. Marconi made the first application for the patent in 1896. All right, how about that? And what is this one here? Oh, yeah. So that's, in, you know, changes, obviously, in the way we communicate, but also some strange stories out about the way we measure. So apparently, based on the Queen's Jubilee, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson is considering, apparently, reintroducing the imperial system of measurement, which straight-up populism. Maybe based on some of the work done by the metric martyrs back in 2001, standing outside of London Court with a pulled pint. It is sort of strange, though, isn't it? Canada is a metric comp- uh, country. We started to use fully the metric system in 1975. But, of course, we all don't use it. So how tall am I? I'm 6'2". 
I'm not 187.96 centimeters. So we get our gas in liters, but we measure our weight in pounds. You know, I think by and large, that's how people use both systems. So the dual system of measurement, but imagine all of the unnecessary costs and arduous tasks for businesses and individuals alike if you all of a sudden drop the met metric system because people like to refer to themselves as six foot two versus 187 187 centimeters. So the U.S., Myanmar, and Liberia are the only countries that still use the imperial system day to day. But it is sort of strange. For Since 1975, we're still kind of using both. Anyway, I thought that was a curious story, so I brought it up. All right, so net price of gas is down. So the PUB's adjustment to overnights reflects... Uh, not only the provincial government's reduction in the tax, the temporary 50% uh, reduction, so it's down 5.1 cents. So, you know, all of the moves and the debate in the legislature and the decision to have a negotiation with the federal government to ensure that they don't impose the backstop regarding our carbon tax bilateral agreement, net result, gas down 5 cents. Diesel down around the same. So the question remains, you know, where does it end? I don't imagine we're going to see any more relief offered by the provincial government. The House of Assembly has wrapped up its spring session yesterday. It was a raucous session, to say the very least. But that was the end result of all the to and fro and the announcements made by the government. Now that it is, has been reflected in the price of gas that you'll pay for today and diesel at the pumps, down five cents. Anyway, this is a good one. Newfoundland and Labrador Hydro. Considering, apparently, so says Jennifer Williams, uh, the CEO at uh, Hydro, that they're considering adding a new generating unit at Beta Spare. She goes on to say there's a whole host of options that they're uh, reviewing to, quote, increase the energy supply. All right. But aren't we told that once Muskrat, whenever they work out all the glitches and bugs and gremlins that continue to plague the development, we're actually going to need more power? So is this in relation to the potential for Muskrat to be even further delayed? Is this the first step towards the potential to decommission Holyrood? So there's currently seven generating units out at Beta Spare, a really good project, the potential to add an eighth. You know, I think it's fairly vague to say to increase energy supply because of what? Do we actually need the extra energy at this moment in time? Or is it looking down the road for some of the potential pitfalls and hurdles and the, the possibility, distinct possibility, of prolonged blackouts and brownouts if there's an issue through the Long Range Mountains or on the Labrador Island link? But it's just sort of a out-of-nowhere type of vague story that's considered adding a new generating unit at Beta Spare. Anyway, I don't get it. All right. So, lots of travel concern, and we know that the federal government has said they're now going to extend all of the travel-based restrictions until the end of this month. And even if you're a vaccinated traveler, you have to fill out the Arrive Can app. And if you don't, there's a penalty to pay. One couple, upon their return, did not fill out the, fully submission, the full submission of Arrive Can, 72 hours prior to their arrival back in Canada. And consequently, as fully vaccinated travelers, they were ordered to quarantine for 14 days. The penalty could be not only quarantine for 14 days, but the potential for a $5,000 fine. So the complaints about Arrive Can are many. Glitches, the harsh penalties for noncompliance, it's absolutely user-unfriendly for seniors. You know, some libraries and this feed store in Maine are doing it for 5 bucks. Uh, they'll help you fill out the app if you're a senior or anybody else who is confused by this particular concern. But the big public health measures, sure. But when we have the concern with the ArriveCan app and the lack of border service agents in the major airports in the country, there's something absolutely 
patently wrong with what's going on here. And I know, again, I'll say it, I'm in the minority regarding the federal mandate regarding vaccination for domestic travel, but just another complication is that Arrive Can app. Remember not so long ago, James McLeod, formerly working with the Telegram here in, the, in Newfoundland and Labrador, went down to work at the Financial Post. And he did a piece about the invasion of his privacy because he downloaded the Tim Hortons app. Now, the Privacy Commissioner of Canada, the Privacy Watchdog, has done a thorough investigation of the app, and they say that they collected highly personal information about its customers without their consent. They also go on, Mr. Uh, Therian, the Privacy Commissioner, says, it's a mass invasion. Quote, private companies think so little of our privacy and freedom that they can initiate these activities without giving it more than a moment's thought. So Tim Hortons will say they're no longer using the geolocation technology that's in question. But for the longest while, they knew where you lived, where you worked, where you worshipped, the health services that you got. Mr. McLeod goes on to talk about his personal experience. They knew everything about him, even when he walked into an, a competing fast food restaurant. So the end result of all this is that legal reform is absolutely required. Tim Hortons will not face any fines or punishment because of this. So this is from the BC Privacy Commissioner. Uh, the fact that they won't face any penalties, that alone underlines the urgent need for law reform in this country, since only Quebec has the ability to impose fines when companies break privacy laws. You know, technology just advances leaps and bounds so quickly. The courts and parliamentarians can't keep up with it. But just imagine what feels like a really innocuous application to have on your phone, whether it be for the opportunity to order in advance, or maybe uh, rack up some points for some rewards and a free coffee or what have you. And at the same time, unbeknownst to anybody, they were tracking you very, very, very closely. It's obscene. You know, when I read the, uh, I saw it on social media, and then I clicked on the thread, and of course it went all the way down to things like, yeah, just like the COVID alert app chasing us around and, and following our footsteps, when in fact that's not true at all. So that's where the people in charge, those lawmakers, not only to advance legal reform as required here regarding our privacy, but help us have a better understanding of exactly what's going on with some of these applications. Because we went from what might have been a very helpful tool, like COVID Alert, and because people thought, well, they're following me around, they wouldn't download it, it became completely ineffective. But yet the same people maybe had the Tim Hortons app on their phone or just using Google, and they, the phone, know, the people who have operations and control of your phone, they know where you are all the time. So that's where we just need a little bit more understanding of what exactly is going on with our applications and how our phones are being used, quote-unquote, against us. And going from... Privacy to secrecy. This story is frustrating. The federal government has adopted 72 secret orders in council, hidden from all parliamentarians and Canadians. This was discovered by a reporter at the CBC when she went through the order in council database. So there's lots of reasons for an order in council, whether it be the Investment Canada Act, so when foreign companies are trying to buy a Canadian business, but the concerns here, and the other one that's kind of strange, is uh, outlining who was authorized to give order to shoot down a commercial airliner hijacked by terrorists. Okay. More than half of the secret orders in council adopted by the Trudeau government have arrived since April of 2020. That's a month after the, the pandemic began. Eleven have been adopted so far this year. Here are some of the numbers in order. The government adopted five secret orders in council in 2016, seven in 2017, eight in 2018, 12 in 2019, and this has been growing steadily since 2015. No government in the past has had any numbers anywhere close to this. So the questions will be, 
how many of these orders in council are yes about Investment Canada? And sure, there's some protection required on that front. But how about COVID? How about the Emergencies Act? How about the protests? All of these types of things. We don't know. And when we don't know, our minds stray to the darkest places. Now, critics of the government, opposition party, they will acknowledge the fact that there is indeed opportunities for orders and council to be protected and kept away from Canadian view. But when we don't know the categories in which so many of these secret orders and council are kept, then of course people are going to think the very, very worst. So the opposition members, I guess to their credit, I think is the way to put it, not only calling the government out on just how frequently they use these orders and council, but they also go on to point out that the lack of information leads to the potential for the adoption and the creation of more and more quote-unquote conspiracy theories. And that's been a big part of the public discourse in the recent past. And has been for a long time, but it's really amplified over the last number of years. But 72 secret orders in council. We have found out over the years about what the content was from some orders in council, some of it inadvertently. And there was a couple of examples offered for some of the orders that were brought forward under Prime Minister Harper. One regarding NORAD's Operation Noble Eagle. There was another one about the hijacking particular issue. There was another one about blocking a Chinese company, ONET Communications, from buying ITF technologies in Montreal. So some of those things, they make sense. But the broad uh, approach that the federal government currently has taken to these secret orders in council is problematic. It's not helpful to them. It's not helpful to any of us. What do you think? You want to talk about it? We can do it. Okay. Moving into the health realm. People will call this criminal justice, but I approach it as a health concern. And it's the opioid crisis, it's the amount of hard and illicit drugs being consumed and killing Canadians. So the province of British Columbia, now let me set it up. So we've seen all the stories and the arrests that have been made here in the province with the criminal networks duking it out here on our streets. Shoot-ups at apartment buildings, fire bombings, inadvertently just blasting out of a parked car, an unoccupied car. It just stands to reason that this is very, very likely about drugs. The province of British Columbia has become the first province to be granted an exemption under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act to remove criminal penalties for possession of some hard drugs. There's a three-year exemption for people who possess a small amount of certain illicit substances for personal use. Now, the country didn't seem ready for the legalization of cannabis products, and probably not really ready for this conversation, even though uh, law enforcement will tell you it's an easier way to keep some of the more dangerous drugs off the street, the high concentration of fentanyl, a regulated supply. When it's been done in other parts of the world, it has not seen a spike in the number of users. It's seen a serious reduction in the number of op opioid overdoses. So whether it be for the, some of the notables, cocaine, uh, methamphetamines, MDMA. So if you have 2.5 grams or less, you will not be arrested and charged and have your drug seized. So that gives uh, the police and the governments opportunities to introduce you to life-saving support and services. All kinds of referrals can be made. And I, I know full well the country's not fully prepared for this, but while we talk about a health crisis, whether it be the lack of family doctors, the cardiac care wait list, the opioid crisis is right in front of us. It's getting worse day in and day out. More than 7,000 people in just British Columbia have died from illicit drug overdoses since the province declared it a public health emergency in 2016. It's not a criminal justice matter, it's a health matter. People are sick, people are dying, and yes, personal accountability is always part of the conversation, but whether some people like it or not, comprehensive harm reduction policies work. They keep people from being sick and dying. They keep public safety top of mind.
It will still be illegal to sell these drugs, right? So the criminal element of society doesn't mean this is, they're going away. But if you regulate the supply, and just imagine clogging up the courtrooms and prisons with people who have had very small amounts of these drugs on them. It doesn't make it a great scene. It will not enable people. No one's going to wake up in BC and say, well, all right, I'm getting right on the heroin. Today's the day. I'm not going to be arrested if I just bring it around in small amounts. It's never been the case, the end result, anywhere else in this world where they've taken that approach. So I know that's a big one. And I know it really ruffles a lot of feathers. You know, even ju just the concept of safe injection sites gets people up in arms, but we're happy to take it on here. All right, a couple of quick references to some of the healthcare numbers. So a most recent survey by the Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association, the numbers of people in the province without a family doctor has risen. We always used the number 100, of 100,000. Now it's much more like 124,000, so says the NLMA. The debates in the House of Assembly about the numbers of people waiting and how long they're waiting for cardiac procedures, it just never ends. You know, the minister will once again say there's capacity at the collaborative care clinics. In Eastern Health alone, through Patient Connect NL, you can register there if you don't have a family doctor, they register some 13,000 and have the opportunity to add at least half more, half of 13,000 more. Patient Connect is not yet available, will be in a couple or three weeks out in Central and Western Health. But are the collaborative care clinics, they should work. It just makes sense. You know, it could be not, a, when we're talking about health, you don't want to use some throwaway quips, but one-stop shop if they're properly staffed. So we can take it on if you're so inclined. And yesterday was the update of the province's COVID hub. Two additional deaths this past week. That brings the total to 184, our condolences. Hospitalization has been long the key metric that we're looking at, right? Number of people hospitalized because of complications regarding the coronavirus has dropped from 13 to 5. That's the lowest total since January 11. Two people are in critical care. That's the same number from the weekly update prior. So maybe we're stabilized. Some people say it's just nothing to even think about or talk about. No concern should be added to it. But it's not gone away yet, even though we seem to be in a much more stable environment. That's the most recent numbers for your information. Of course, there's no end of the stuff we can talk about. We're on Twitter or VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Tune time. All right, it was today in 1984. This fella bought me a hot dog on George Street after we saw him in concert at Memorial Stadium. So 1984, cracking the top ten with the heart of rock and roll, Huey Lewis and the News. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Yesterday, the provincial government revealed a five-year action plan, and the goal is to reduce incidents of suicide in this province. Just for some numbers. According to the government, between 1981 and 2017, rates of suicide in the province increased by 234%. Obviously, you need to have a keen focus on the issue. Join us on Line Report to discuss the five-year action plan. It's Tina Davies with Richard's Legacy. Good morning, Tina. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I uh, appreciate making time. The last time we spoke, maybe last week or the week before, it was you made reference to what was coming with this announcement. I'm sure it's a big relief. Give us your thoughts on the 12 points inside this action plan. It is. You're right. It is a big relief. It is uh, actually is such a... Uh, I was pretty overwhelmed yesterday at the announcement because, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and... Uh, it was just, and we've been working behind since the behind the scenes since the all party committee made the uh, trip all over the province and brought back those directives. And to be there for the announcement and to feel the support 
you know, it's support. It's 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 so important uh, to um, to continue with a more positive uh, plan. You know, with the action items actually. You know, and and, and the government and uh, all these community uh, groups, indigenous people, uh, all involved. Is it, it was it was just uh, it's amazing. Help help elaborate on some of the. 12 targeted actions. So the reference to a uh, focus on community mental health literacy, meaning what? Becoming aware uh, of, of mental health alone, literacy, speaking about it, uh, information, reaching out not just to centers like St. John's and, and Cornerville, but to, to reach everybody in rural Newfoundland. Uh, all the little towns, uh, everywhere. Uh, it, it's important. Because sometimes we've reacted after the fact. We see a rash of deaths by suicide in the Bureau Peninsula. We send down the appropriate health care professionals and deal with it. We see a rash of deaths by suicide in Labrador. We send up the health care professionals to deal with it, as opposed to some more as opposed to being reactive, being proactive and implementing these types of mental health literacy, some prevention and intervention programs right now around the province because it's, it's you know the government, it's hard to have a crystal ball, but we know full well that if the, the, the statistics are as clear as they are, is that we need to get out in front of it as opposed to react after we see a number of these horrible headlines. Absolutely. The, we need the education uh, for everyone. Uh, Everyone, adults, uh, children, youth, uh, emerging adults, <laughs> you know, uh, education and training, it's important, like, uh, you know, assist the applied suicide intervention skills training, safe talk, uh, mental health first aid, it, it, it all is combined to foster this culture of compassion and understanding and connection, and to me, that's... To me, that's the most important thing is, is obviously, is connection with compassion. And, and I think that we're going to be uh, really building on that. So part of this, you know, of course, critically important to deal with prevention and, and intervention, but as also part of this plan, which is called our Path to Resilience, is follow-up services for people, for families and friends who are impacted by suicide. It's one thing for you and your group doing the terrific work that you do, but to formalize this also adds an additional layer of comfort and compassion. Right, okay. We're, so it, there's, there's like kind of three, suicide separated into like three things there's there's prevention intervention and postvention so for the prevention we we need to provide the education and training to help communities recognize these signs uh, like any signs of suicide risk um, build comfort in talking about it and we need to have the access to care more available uh it's, you know and that is all over the place and including workplaces uh, to have workplace wellness programs to address things like that it it's 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 so very important uh and you're right the, the follow-up the follow-up is is just as important uh, we plan on uh, there's a plan for us to 
travel and do set up support groups all over all over the province. If you don't think that's not a dream come true for me, I'm telling I'm telling you. It's like amazing, amazing. And I'm going to be doing this. I'm going to be uh, doing this till the day I can't do it anymore. Uh, and it's and it's wonderful to be able to. I would have loved to have done that, but I have no funding, and it's just me. And you know that that kind of thing. But now with all of this all of these people working together and the amount of funding set aside now we can do some things I know you put a lot of effort into not only this particular piece of work with the all party committee but you and your group over the number of years so uh, hopefully this is the beginning of a much safer and open conversation about death by suicide and all of the measures that we can implement to see that reverse the trend that we've seen since uh, 1981 Tina anything else you'd like to say uh, really just this plan uh, is going to help us build awareness uh, and and build our resi- resilience not only as a community but as a province and as human beings it's it's so important you know we have to remember that these are all these are all human beings and and connection with compassion is the key and I look forward to getting all around the province and, and meeting with people and helping set up some of these support groups and whatever else we need. I, I'm just I, actually I'm still overwhelmed. <laughs> and, and that's OK way to feel. Uh, I really appreciate your time this morning. Tina, stay in touch. Thank you, Patty. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Tina Davies with Richard's legacy, of course, Richard, her son who died by suicide. And Tina's been very open, and I'm sure she's helped countless families in the years since. Let's take a break. When we come back, shrimp. Mike wants to talk about one of the facets of healthcare, I think contractual relations. And then Angie Fitzpatrick is in the queue to talk about an iconic piece of St. John's history you can actually buy through an auction and raising money for cancer. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number three. Good morning, Terry. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning uh, to you. Yes, uh, Patty, I want to talk to you about shrimp again, but uh, as you are aware, it's been an ongoing issue regarding the the non-starting of the shrimp fishery over the last while, and uh, <clears throat> nothing is happening. There's no progress being made on finding a solution to the, the problem, the problem being the companies are saying we're not going to pay <coughs> the negotiated price for shrimp. And, of course, uh, uh, we're just still tied on the wharf. So as a means to try and exert some pressure on powers to be, and more specifically SFAW and AFP, to uh, get together to get a re- resolution to this uh, issue and uh, get this fishery going before it's too late. Uh, my uh, son's boat is leaving the <coughs> sea to go shrimp fishing and uh, taking our chances that when we get in, somebody will buy the shrimp. If not, then uh, we'll have to do something else with it, either give it to some charity or charities 
if government regulations will permit that, or if not, go back to sea and dump it. Yeah, I don't think the government regulations permitted that. I had to look around because some of those things should be available and allowed here in the province. So, okay, the potential to dump up to 50,000 pounds of shrimp. Uh, just for inf- people's information, last year, Terry Sun went out and illegally commercially fished. And it's not me letting the cat out of the bag. You admitted that on the show the last time we spoke. Do you have any sense of... You might have gotten away with something last time, and this time maybe won't be so lucky because it's a fairly stiff penalty to pay, I believe, if you were caught doing this. And I know you're announcing that you're doing it, so <laughs> fair enough and fair ball. So do you have any sense of, hmm, might be pushing my luck here? Well, last year uh, we broke a law. We went fishing when DFO did not have the fishery open. Yep. But we're breaking no law of the year. DFO has the fishery open Sunday, 6 a.m. in the morning, Sunday past. So are you, uh, this is a question because I don't know the answer. Are you allowed to go take some of your quota and then just purposefully dump it overboard? I don't know if that's allowed or not. I'm asking an honest question. Uh, I'm not aware of any law or regulation saying I can't dump it or do whatever I want with it. I I jokingly said to, um, it was you and I already also fishy broadcast last time I was on that if I was growing vegetables, I could use a fertilizer on my vegetable (laughs) patch. Uh, As my shrimp, or my son, uh, and he's got his license, he's got his license paid for, he's got his license conditions from DFO uh, to harvest the shrimp, and you can do what you want with it. That sounds about right. I was just asking a question. Yeah. So when is this going to happen? He's leaving with sea this weekend, uh, opening maybe Friday if the weather's suitable. We're in the middle of a storm and northerly wind here now. It's not fitted there, but uh, as soon as conditions permit and we're going fishing, and uh, <clears throat> as far as we know now, we're landing in St. Anthony because that's the closest port to where you're going fishing. It's down in what they call the St. Anthony Basin. And uh, we're hoping <clears throat> that while he's out on the fishing grounds, somebody, logic will prevail, and ASP and FSAW and maybe with the government's help, I don't know, Although the fishery don't seem very important to our provincial government, um, they they'll find a resolution before we land, and we won't have to either give it to charity or put it on a potato field or dump it at sea. Yeah, sure. And you know, everyone knows what the FFAW is, and you say ASP. That's the Association of Seafood Producers. For those who may be not familiar with the acronym, uh, I appreciate the uh, time, Cherry. Safe, but, safe trip, uh, Patty. Uh, yeah. If I can just add something, please. This uh, I want to add that this issue here is a classic example of the price-setting panel not working. The the government's legislation where they set up this price-setting panel is responsible for this. The panel is uh, is ruled by government legislation, which means they have to pick either the final offer of ASP or the final offer of the SFAW. They can't pick a price in between. Mm -hmm. And it's not working. I mean, the, the prices were so far apart. I mean, the the, uh, the ASP's final offer was $0.90 a pound. There will be no fishery at that price. Fishermen can't fish for that price, obviously, especially with fuel prices this year, and shrimp being a large consu- consumption fishery of fuel. And and now the buyers are saying, we're not going to buy $1.42. And the only way anything can change is if either ASP or FFAW asks for a reconsideration to the panel. They're entitled to one each, right? Yep. So... FFAW is not going to ask for a reconsideration. What are they going to do? Shoot themselves in the foot? I mean, the, the panel picked the, uh, 
FFAW saw an offer $1.42, so they're not going to ask for a reconsideration. And ASP is saying, we're not going to ask for one either. But if it's in your best interest for a price to be adjusted where the buyers will actually buy, so would the FFAW be shooting themselves in their foot or actually allowing you to go get it and sell it? Because if they're not going to pay $1.42, maybe they're just not going to, but they might pay $1.29. Like, I don't know, I just picked a number out of thin air. Yeah, but we, we won't know that unless ASP and, and the FFAW sits down to have a talk around the table again. As far as I know, there's no government legislation preventing that from happening. No. I mean, they are allowed to contact each other and say, boys, come on, let's go in the building here, sit down, talk this out again, see if we can reach a price that fishermen will fish for and that buyers will buy for to get this hundred-plus million-dollar fishery off the ground. Fair enough. No, obviously, they can talk. I mean, and I would imagine there's been a fair amount of communication, we'll call it, between the two entities over the years. Uh, Terry, I wish you a safe trip. Thank you very much, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, will I take Angie before we go, Dave? Yes, okay. So, do you want to own a piece of St. John's history? It was last year on the 26th of May, uh, John Fitzpatrick died. John Fitzpatrick ran Fitz's Cold Beer, and that iconic sign is going to be auctioned off for a cancer fundraiser. And join us online, number one, is his daughter, Angie. Good morning, Angie. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to have you on the program. Everyone who's ever passed by your father's store on Tops Road can picture that sign. It says very simply, Fitz's Cold Beer. So he took all the empties and he sold lots of beer. Before we get into the sign and the auction and why you're doing it, tell us a bit about your dad and his decades behind the counter there at Fitz's Cold Beer. So my dad had that business for over 44 years. Um, he worked there six days a week, sometimes seven. He never rarely took a vacation. I think his first vacation was a couple of years ago with my mom down to Vegas. Um, but that was his life. So he was always behind the, he was the face of the Fitz's Cold Beer, and he is Fitz. So that was his life, and that's how he provided for his family. And, you know, I would imagine that there would be plenty of people that would like to have that particular sign out in the shed or whatever the case may be. So I know your father died from uh, cancer, and so you're going to try to raise money for the Dr. H. Bliss Murphy Cancer Care Foundation. Is the auction live yet? So the auction is going to be live later today. I was just talking with uh, Wayne from Bartlett's Auctions. Uh, it's all very, you know, you're trying to make a good news story out of a sad loss for your family. Yes, 100%. Yep, giving back to the community. That's what Dad would want. Yeah, so do you have a goal in mind, what you'd like to see come from the sale? <laughs> I do. Um, I, I don't really want to say okay. it. Okay, don't want to jinx it. But I do. <laughs> I'm hoping we get as much as we can um, to just go towards the Cancer Care Foundation. So if people are so inclined to bid on the Fitz's Call Bear sign, where's the site to get uh, Mr. Bartlett's auction? Okay, so you go to BartlettAuctions.com, and it'll have all the information there. Uh, the pre-bidding, like I said, goes live later today, and the auction begins to close at 8 p.m. Monday evening on June 6th. Did you or any of the other uh, family members work in the store? No, um, we weren't allowed. He actually had three daughters, uh, including me, <laughs> but we weren't allowed. We weren't allowed to go down there. We'd go down and help out on the weekends or evenings, but he didn't want us down there all the time. <laughs> Not working anyway. Well, I can't say I knew your father, but I knew of your father, and I can picture him in my mind's eyes, I'm apt to say, many times during the show. So he was, you know, he had the big beam and smile all the time. That much I remember about your father. Uh, I could hear a bunch of jokes being cracked back and forth, and it was kind of like the post office. There was a bunch of guys that would come in and hang around. That was where they just hung out. 
that's exactly what it was. I would walk in and it would be the truck drivers there, all his loyal customers there, uh, just hanging out and uh, having a laugh, really. And I think your dad was also known for his generosity. Uh, so hopefully folks will be aware of this particular auction. The funds will be raised for the H. Bliss Murphy Center, and everybody knows the work they do. Angie, it's probably a really great idea. Someone's going to love to have that sign. Anything else you'd like to say while we have you this morning? Yes, so we actually have an additional link um, on the Cancer Care Foundation website as well for someone who doesn't want to bid on the sign. Uh, so I do encourage them to go to that link, and that is the cancercarefoundation.ca forward slash donate forward slash. So you just scroll down on the main page um, on the second row, and there's a link that says auction in honor of John Fitzpatrick. So you just click that, and then you can go through and donate there as well. Yeah, it was a beer store that was more like a Just for Laughs. It was a, it was <laughs> a really interesting place to visit. And, of course, it was originally called Brewer's Retail, which is so bland. Fitz is called beer. The sign beer. is up for auction. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Angie. Good luck with it. Thank you so much, Patty. Take care. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, it was. If you've ever been in there, it was, to say the very least, a vibrant store. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go line number two. Mike, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Uh, three quick uh, things that the government's supposed to have done here lately that's supposed to bring out reports on was back the uh, Compass Group and contracts and that stuff with the Department of Health, the Public Accounts Committee and the market families that they've done, but nothing has come out. But anyway, the first one, on the government contracts, back when COVID started, I don't know if you remember or not, but Dr. Hagee was supposed to bring out the uh, Compass contract, make it public, and the reasons why, basically, of why uh, a man making sixty or $70,000 a year income, and we're paying a million dollars a year for that person. Now, two years later, we've got close to $100 million gone that it shouldn't be spent. But anyway, that report was never, ever given out. Uh, it was never made public. And I think the Doctors Association, Medical Association, that whatever, should all have the opportunity to examine these contracts, which are taking money away from where it should be and spend it excessively in other places. And the CEO and the executive should be held responsible for these contracts that uh, I sent it before or to the uh, Department of Justice. The Department of Justice came back with the previous contract that it wasn't illegal, but it should never have been signed. So there's definite evidence there that these contracts should never be signed. They are excessive and a complete waste of money. Uh, and it's, like I said, being led, uh, being led by the CEO and the and the executive of the healthcare that are incompetent in in a in probably managing the system, and they got to hire out contracting companies and that and stuff from around the world to uh, make the decisions and that and stuff that, and they're basically doing nothing. And uh, you know, there's just all you know should be all out in the open of what everything is going on with it. But anyway, I call on Dr. Hay to release these contracts and everything to the people and they don't know what's going on. Absolutely. And we've looked for the yeah. same information in the past, as you know, Mike. Yeah, well, you can remember this, I think, pretty well back two years ago when he was supposed to bring it out. He supposed to bring it out that January. But Dr. Hagee has been hiding this, uh, these contracts and that stuff for, for years, since he's been in there. And he refuses to basically do anything about it. And he won't act on to it. And if he's not forced to do it, he's not going to do it 
by the, by the public pressure and the doctors' association, and like me, I'm just a lone voice in the wilderness that people listen to it. They know what I'm saying, but nobody will back me. But uh, like I said, it all came out in the open that the people could see the actual facts and everything else that uh, that they should have. Then something will be done because it's totally ridiculous. Right now, in the last two years, we've raised probably close to $100 million that we should not have spent, that could easily be spent other places. And you take a look at it. The management there couldn't even manage the Tim Horton store. And that'll just give you the, <laughs> the facts onto it. You wouldn't manage much if you can't make money on one of them. But anyway, getting on to the next thing, okay. the Public Accounts Committee. They did this study onto the ferries and that with the Green Report and all the rest of it. They did interviews where they were hoodwinked by the Deputy Minister and the Assistant Deputy Minister. Uh, now, they've, apparently, they've got so much on their plate and that stuff that they're taking on all of these things when they can't finish them. So here they got a whole bunch of stuff not being done. And then they got to prolong other things. Instead of taking on something and going and getting it done, and if they are too busy to do something, don't take on something else. Finish a finish a job, and uh, or else they're never getting nothing done. And as far as I'm concerned, that report should be out now of the uh, ferries of where the waste of money is to, and it, and it's going to come out if the, if they do their job right. It's going to come out. What everybody told them is that the fault of the ferry system is in Confederation building. The executives in there, the bureaucrats. The accountants, they're coming up with ideas that are harebrained scheme, costing us a fortune that it shouldn't have be it shouldn't have to be there. They're not qualified for doing the jobs. And it's that's where all of our problems are too. Confederation building. You don't have to go any further. And then the market market soundings, there's millions of dollars spent again for these market soundings. Uh, where are the results to? Uh, no results. They went and did it all. Now nothing. Nobody saying anything. Nobody giving it reports. Where can I go to to get reports or whatever or find out what was said? What did he come up with? What are they doing? They're spending all this money doing all these studies and that stuff and everything else. And we're not getting the results of it. And it's not being done in a timely fashion. So there's a lot of stuff going on with this government. And, uh, you know, I think it's totally ridiculous. And as regards to our premier, I don't think he's a leader. He's a doctor. And probably a fine doctor, but right now I think that my opinion of him is that he's practicing his uh, acting skills and uh, hope for another career after on a, on a show called uh, Doctor Hemorrhoids. All right, because uh, he, he's been a pain, <laughs> and you know where, as far as I'm concerned, and not getting things done, and he don't know anything about this, and he should be looking at it more. And listening to two sides, not one side. He can't believe all this stuff that these bureaucrats are telling him. They're telling all the government, the ministers, and everybody else what to do, and we're not getting any changes. We need changes. We need changes in attitude in the government and the process that they're doing stuff. And the laws and rules and regulations, they're breaking them right, left, and center and trying to make us follow them. And there's no responsibility for the people. They make mistakes. They waste millions. And what are they done? They're given advancement. And, you know, it's it's time for somebody to take an overall uh, look at the, the whole works with it and 
you know, we all got to do something or we're going downhill and we're going downhill fast. And it's time for these people to, if you got a job to do, do it. And don't over, you know, overdo it. That here they got left everything go. Here they got eight or ten projects on the go and getting nothing done. So let's hear from them. Let's hear from the public finance committee. Let's hear from the market soundings. They were very voiceless uh, when they were doing it all, going out, making it all public and going around to the places and everything else. But now to give out the results, I don't think they really like the results that they've come out with. And you don't want to give it to the public. I'd like to have a look at it. Uh, like I'd like to have a look at a bunch of things that they're sitting on. Uh, Mike, appreciate the time. Off to the news. Stay in touch. Yeah, I was going to say, Patty, what a win we've had this morning. The pond that I'm living on a little while ago was white. Wicked winds. And here now, since we're talking to you, they've died down to just wheat caps. <laughs> but boy, what a win we've had. Well, stay off the water. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. <laughs> Thanks, bye. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, how are we doing out there, Dave? Uh, this one, you know, it'd be nice to have a look at even some of the recommendations in the Rothschild report, whether or not they jibe with the Green report. Newfoundland Labrador Liquor, the NLC, releases financial results yesterday. Total dividends for fiscal year 21-22, $210 million, the highest ever. You know, it makes it difficult to have a conversation about whether there's any economic upside for the provincial government and maybe for the consumer to see the NLC privatized and assets sold off, whatever that actually means. So that's up to, that's about 400 bucks per person in the province. Sales were up 3.2%. Beer was up 11.5%. Wine was up 4.4%. The ready-to-drink bevies were up 8.7%. So the NLC discussion, if that interests you, maybe we could talk about that or anything else right after the news. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Well, hear from a lot of concerned congregants of the Roman Catholic Church, especially those who worship in one of the 34 parishes here in the Archdiocese of St. John's. Now, it would be great if any of them considered giving the, the show a call, but today is the day, the deadline, for the submission of bids. You know, there's been some keen focus, whether it be Holy Rosary in Portugal Cove and a court ruling regarding St. Kevin's, their ability to keep the property and a share of the over five and a half, five and a half million dollars that they raised on Chase Ace, which still boggles my mind. But a lot of talk about the Basilica, St. Bons, uh, St. Bonaventure's College, and St. Bons Forum. But, you know, to know that so many people have maybe limited resources, but are making donations to their local parish in an effort to stave off might be someone who bids to convert the church into whatever it might be, a dinner theater all the way to a condominium. It's hard to envision the Basilica of St. John the Baptist being anything but a place of worship. It's the second largest Catholic church in the country. And there's... Absolutely, Toronto developers that have been knocking on the door. We've heard the report from uh, Mr. Blackie at St. Bonaventure's College that they knocked on the door of St. Bonaventure's, wanted to come in and have a look around just to see what they might be getting themselves into if they want to uh, finalize their bid and buy that particular property. So, again, for those of you who are not of the faith and don't go to church and this is of no concern to you, it's a concern to the victims of Mount Cashel. It's a concern to the parishioners. The bill for compensation might be in the neighborhood of $50 million. But the bids are have to be in today with 15% of the total bid cost. And then in the very near future, they have to submit the totality of their bid. 
And also, we spoke with uh, Terry Ryan, he's a fish harvester, about shrimp and the lack of buyers out there at this moment in time because of the disparity between the price requested or submitted by the FFAW versus the price from the Association of Seafood Producers. The ASP uh, submitted 90 cents, and the final price chosen was indeed the FFAW's at $1.42. You know, I don't know if it's in any side's best interest to ask for a reconsideration because you need to go out and get the product, but it just leads me to the discussion regarding snow crab. And it's just, you know, depending on the voice, it's just handled so differently, isn't it? If you're a, a harvester or the FFAW, you will say 40% of the snow crab quote is left in the water. And that's an issue with an overheated market, so says the Association for Seafood Producers. So the FFAW says 40% left in the water. The Association of Seafood Producers say 60% of the quota is taken out of the water. Now, it's the exact same piece of math, but not exactly, because the fish harvesters are, you know, focusing on what they haven't caught. The processors are focusing with what they have processed. And so there will indeed be countries that are some of the big buyers of the product, and snow crab is a tremendous product, that are waiting for the price to bottom out. There has been an adjustment down from 7.60 a pound at the beginning of the season to now 6.15 per pound uh, for the snow crab. So there you go. It's just the uh, where you stand depends on where you sit. Hey, boy. All right, let's go to line number one. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Good day, Mr. Danny. Good day to you. Uh, There's a number of times I've called you, but I just haven't gotten counted, but it's regarding there about a month or two months ago when Mr. Singh and his own self, Trudeau, came down with assistance for all the problems for some help for a slow income, whether we're seniors or any, but the dental, some dental help or what? Dental care, yeah. Yeah. You know, he came down with it, promises, promises. That's almost eight weeks ago. So what's the what's the plan of action? Is he, you know? Well, if I remember correctly, the Canadian Dental Association didn't think that this was quite the right play. They're talking about working with the partners uh, at the provincial level to fund some underfunded provincial dental programs. And just so people know what we're talking about, so I'm trying to remember the numbers properly. It was over $5 billion. I think it was $5.3 billion, $5. billion on the table. They say it might take months before it's fully implemented. So it's uh, children under the age of 12 this year. They're going to expand to uh, youth under the age of 18 or 18-year-old and younger. Seniors people with disabilities in full in 2023. The entire program will be implemented across the board by 2025. This has been long clamored for. This was used to be a standalone NDP vision, but because there was this partnership, a, a management coalition, or whatever people want to call it, between the NDP and the Liberals, this was part of the broker negotiation, so this particular denture care plan. It probably is going to take months to be fully implemented, but that was the plan anyway. Uh, it's just way off. It's way off yet. Like I say, like they, we, well, I'm, I'm, I'm dying seeing it. But like I say, I mean, oh, sorry. No. Uh, and he, not own government, but Mr. Government, when he took it away in 2016, uh, he don't stop Mr. Fury or Mr. Hayes. They're not doing nothing. Think about us. Well, the dental health is a, is a health problem. Sure it is. But but you don't you don't understand that. Mm-hmm. Two-thirds of Canadians, this work gets complicated, right? Is if you have private employers offering some form of this benefit, dental care, through their employees, that's about 
two-thirds of Canadians have some coverage for the dental plan. So while it's a good idea for the federal government to consider de- national dental care, to look at universal pharmacare, we can't let the private sector off the hook. If they're already paying some of the benefits for their employees, we don't need them to drop it all of a sudden. So there's got to be some way to you know, deal with private insurers, deal with private sector employers while we implement some of these programs because it shouldn't all be on the government's bill if private sector employers are already footing some of the bill. I'm sorry, I can't really hear you. Try again. Amber Denalis gave your Colorado, uh, Colorado uh, ranch, uh, uh, hockey team, gave, gave uh, Amber gave a good run here in I'm enjoying it. Did you watch the first game? Oh, yeah, yeah. I tell you what, the speed of play is just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Now, not exactly, you know, goaltending duels that we've seen in years past, but 8-6, just like uh, Edmonton opened up their series with uh, the Calgary Flames. But I'll see if I can sneak in a little nap so I can watch the game again this evening. Mm-hmm. Well, you have a nice day, and I'll, I'll keep on listening to your show, and uh, it's well informable, and uh, we're still quite uh, right the Calgary Flames, but uh, I don't know. That's all I can do, just have a check. Stay in touch. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah, the you know, there's still some people that are really, really upset by the partnership formalized. You know, people can call it whatever you like between the Liberals and the NDP, which will, in essence, keep the Liberals in power right until their four-year term is up and we go back to the polls. I mean, it's happened many, many times in the recent past, and it's not the first time the NDP have quote-unquote propped up another party the jack layton ndp propped up the harper conservatives so the fact that it's been formalized and people will say well we didn't vote for that i think i get the concept but the fact is nobody votes for these types of outcomes anyway you don't vote for a majority you don't vote for a minority you don't vote for a partnership we have a bit of a fooled up system anyway so if this is a result of the first past the post, and of course the liberals crossed their fingers on their toes when they said the last election was the last one to be settled by first past the post, 50% plus one, here's where we find ourselves. Is this a good thing for the country? I don't know. I guess it depends on your political leanings. But there's still a lot of people out there that think this is somehow criminal and that we didn't vote for it. But it's happened many times in the past. Will it be to anyone's ultimate benefit? I don't know. But when you factor in things like 72 secret orders in council, frustrating as all get out. And it will lead to people going down the path of something really dire and nefarious. And it might even be true. But when they sit on all the information that they do, and these numbers are much unlike governments in the past, even past liberal governments like Paul Martin, very few secret orders in council. 72 since 2015 for these Trudeau-led liberals. Anyway, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're talking about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Good morning, Reverend Trevors. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good to talk to you again. Happy to have you uh, on the show. Pat- Good to be here. Patty, uh, Holy Trinity Church in Grand Falls, Windsor, is sponsoring a concert for Ukraine. And it's Saturday, this Saturday, June the 4th, at 7 p.m. The cost is $10. You can uh, purchase a ticket beforehand, or you can purchase a ticket at the door. 
the performers are uh, local performers here at in our community and it's going to be a, a, a wonderful time and we've got a good lineup of some wonderful wonderful singers that are going to bring a variety of music for this worthwhile cause so you say you're raising money for ukraine are you talking about humanitarian relief on the ground in eastern europe or are yes. you talking about supports here in the province uh, uh in europe and how does it get delivered for What's that? How does it get delivered? Because that's one of the oh. complicating factors, isn't it? We want to know how the money gets to the people who are intending to help. Right on. Well, we have an organization that's called the Primates World Relief and Development Fund, and they have uh, contacts and are sponsoring programs happening right on the ground uh, where uh, the refugees are heading to in the different countries. And for uh, the ones that are still in the country and need help, they're trying to get resources to them as well. And, and uh, the good news about the Primates World Relief and Development Fund, that 96 to 97 cents of every dollar gets to the ground. And that's the real trick, isn't it? You know, whether it be for this initiative or other charities out there, people want to help when they have the capacity to help. But then not every charity is created equal. Some administrative costs really take away the big sting that your impact, your $10 or $20 bill can have. So that's a really good number to offer is that the bulk, I mean, 96 or 97 cents gets to the intended target. Welcome. Uh, target is yeah. probably the wrong word. Oh, I apologize for that. Uh, gets to the people <laughs> that you're trying to help. So that's good news. Give us a taste of who's yeah. going to be performing to entice uh, the donors. You know what? The, uh, uh, people here are really familiar with uh, Queen Street Theatre, and a lot of the folks that perform there are going to be performing at our uh, our charity uh, for Ukraine. And Charlotte Carey, Tom Pinson, Nicholas, Lloyd, Goss, Angela Pittman, Freeman, Percy, and then there's uh, then the three reverends are going to do some stuff too. Reverend Jeff Blackwood, Reverend Robin Trevers, and Reverend Roy Martin. What do you guys do? Well, we're we are all guitarists. And okay. we sing together do stuff and so we're looking forward to supporting this this effort uh reverend do you happen to know if you've seen ukrainian refugees uh make their way to your part of central newfoundland to set down roots you know what uh, not as yet have i seen any but i i do believe that there's been talk of some refugees coming but i'm not sure when they're going to show i appreciate the time good luck with the concert give us the details one more time uh, so on Saturday, June the 4th, this Saturday at 7 p.m., we're having uh, Holy Trinity Church in Grand Falls, Windsor, sponsoring a concert for Ukraine, and it's $10. You can purchase a ticket here at the church, or you can call the church at 489-3002, and we'll make sure that we reserve a ticket for you, and, and you can have, uh, or you can purchase a ticket at the door. I appreciate this, and good luck with the Reverend. Thank you so much. Talk to you later, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Here we go. Concert coming up. Support for Ukraine. You know, the you wonder what the outcome will be. We know that the province had a chartered aircraft. I believe they brought 168 people on that, that aircraft that day when it landed here in the city of St. John's. The province was the only province in the country that sent a team to Poland, to Warsaw in particular, to help navigate Ukrainian refugees looking to make this province their next and hopefully their final home. 
And so I've seen a lot of, like, there's stories here in the city of St. John's. Uh, one Ukrainian doctor had to leave her doctor husband behind. There was a story of five students from Ukraine that are here completing their master's degree at Memorial University, and hopefully they'll keep their skills here in the province. We do know there's a pocket of them in the Bay St. George region. So, you know, the, con- the conversation goes down the very same road every single time, is the concept of charity begins at home. When, in fact, given the change in protocol for the Ukrainians to make their way to the country and do the paperwork upon arrival versus all the hoops that people jump through otherwise, the support that people think they're getting financially is not there. They're not getting it, you know, versus other people who come from wherever in this world through refugee programs. There's been some individuals that have stepped up to the plate. Greg Roberts, for instance, Mary Browns is providing some financial support for the refugees. There's other, like the Association for New Canadians and individual families that might be able to sponsor a family. So the hope is that they add to not only the societal fabric, but yes, to be contributing members of society. And there's no reason to believe that they can't or won't in the future. Look, the immigration conversation sometimes gets derailed very, very quickly, and unnecessarily so. It's fair enough to ask about supports. It's fair enough to ask about the vetting and security of refugees coming from wherever. And, you know, the focus used to be on single young men coming from some countries in the Middle East. It's okay to ask questions about how, you know, what kind of paperwork is requested or required, and so that we know who you are, where you came from, what you're all about. But every case is different, and there's four different silos for uh, refugees and immigrants, the path to permanent citizenship and citizenship here in the country, or permanent residency, pardon me, and citizenship. So there's, there's still plenty of realistic conversation we could and should be having about the refugees, not only from Ukraine, but from everywhere. And from where I stand, welcome. Michael makes a good point here on Twitter regarding the Newfoundland Liquor, Liquor Corporation. I'll give you the numbers one more time. So the most recent financial results are... Impressive, I guess, if we're simply talking about the numbers. Total dividend to the provincial government in the past fiscal year, $210 million. It's about $8 million more than the record set last year. So when you hear and see that number, the thought very quickly becomes, how could any government in the right mind sell off an asset that actually generates revenues for the province? So the sales are up, and the $210 million adds up to about $400 for every single person in Newfoundland and Labrador, and that, of course, includes children who would not, and hopefully not, be the consumers. Sales are up 3.2%. Beer sales up 11.5%. Wine up 4.4%. And all the ready-to-drink uh, beverages that they sell, 85 or 8.7%. Michael says, any decision of government to sell assets like the Liquor Commission should be a referendum of the people of the province with all the facts laid on the table. Okay, I don't know if it needs a referendum, but it certainly needs debate on the floor of the House of Assembly. Because selling off Bull Arm versus selling off Marble Mountain versus privatizing motor vehicle versus selling off the assets of the Liquor Corporation, they are all extremely different circumstances. But now... What we have is the Premier's Economic Recovery Team report, Moya Green and her crew. So we know what they think, you know, whether it be divesting our oil and gas assets all the way through. And then the $5 million spent with Rothschild & Co., which you have to think the government is going to lean on. You know, if we don't know if they're going to privatize anything until the tenders are set out, then we're a little bit late in the day to have a full public understanding of exactly what we're talking about. Because at this moment in time, it's all just anybody's best guess. 
you would think, given some of the track record of Rothschild and Co., that they probably have recommended privatizing or divesting, you know, whether it be short-term relief for the provincial government or otherwise, whether or not they are suggesting or recommending there's an economic upside. The NLC conversation basically just all stops and starts with the amount of money coming in the form of a dividend. It does not include all the operating costs, whether it be workers' compensation or remuneration packages or indoor real estate holdings and the relationship with the uh, LCBO, the Liquor Corp in uh, the province of Ontario. The buying power that that presents is massive. So we don't even know what people mean by selling off the NLC. And we can't have a debate on the floor of the House, the House of Assembly because we have no details to debate other than the dividend. And the dividend is only part of the conversation. So withholding this information, look, if there's commercial sensitivities that should be withheld, do it. If there are concerns with intellectual property, do it. Hold them back. If there are HR concerns, you can sit on those as well. But there is really no downside that I can tell if they simply say the recommendation from Rothschild is to X. Privatize NLC. Okay, because then we can actually have the beginning of a conversation. But at this moment in time, we're just taking guesses. And that's not getting us anywhere. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Jim, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, quick question. Uh, the money paid to the Rothschild Group, uh, is this in uh, Canadian or American money? Just $5 million. I, At the beginning, I thought it was uh, American monies, but I've since been told it's uh, Canadian dollars. So no, there's been two I'm, different reports out there on that. It's kind of hard to believe no, that we can't no. figure out. Pardon? Right, right. Now, the government has announced some $5 million just to keep it down, but it's definitely in American. So uh, the conversion, I don't know from Canadian to American. It's much more than Five million. And why do you say it's much more? Or why do you say it's five million American? Uh, I've heard from uh, good sources that it's American. Yeah, because the the original story was that it was American money, and then very quickly the news stories uh, converted it back to Canadian money. So yeah, I'll I, be honest with you, I don't know. Five yeah, million American I, is about. I think the powers to be is trying to make it sound like it's Canadian money. You know, like uh, I really believe it's American money. Uh, you know, it seems like an awful lot of money to uh, pay a group that's doing the government's business. I mean, what the hell have we got these people in there working for? We don't we have appraisers? Don't we have anything? And you know, we got to hire outside people for everything. Well, we shouldn't we... hire as many consultants as we do. The no, argument, not. the argument is that you know these types of transactions are not normal courses of business for government. But that doesn't well, mean that we don't have the horsepower at Mon and local business leaders and members of the the bureaucracy. Uh, working for us that couldn't have done this type of work. I, I refuse to believe that we couldn't figure this out. Uh, but, I believe you're right, sir. Yeah, no, anyway, 5 million, 5 million American is somewhere over 6.3 million Canadian. Well, that's right. That's right. It'd be nice for that to, to be announced. Now, also, they took a, a part of the sales tax off of gasoline, right? Yeah. Now, did they not increase the carbon tax right away, too, uh, the, uh, 9 cents? They increased it to 11 cents, so an additional 2.2 cents. That was the last uh, bump. I've seen it reported that there was an 11 cent increase, but that's not accurate. It brings the full complement of carbon tax to 11 cents-ish, and the increase was 2.2. 
Very good. I'd appreciate, though, with your uh, powers to be to find out about this American, because well, the person that told me, uh, I, think he, I think he's pretty sure. I think he works in that department, actually. Well, he very, he very much, uh, he very well might. Like, I don't know where the number comes from, but I do know that the tune changed a couple of times. I initially yeah, thought it was American. Yeah, no, I like, I mean, generally, all business done like that is done in the currency for where it's coming from. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, but th- if know. that's the case, then it would have been paid in euros or something because the company's based uh, in Paris. Uh, true, true, which would be worse again. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely worse again. Yeah, I, I think uh, yeah, I think our, uh, our government uh, is trying to sell it in the lowest point, uh, you know. They're looking bad enough as it is, and they, they, they don't want to look any worse at this point. But the- they can't hide this forever because this one has to be itemized in in a bunch of different forms, financially speaking, with the government. Whether it be it eventually rears its ugly head in some of the uh, uh, the estimates, documents, and stuff. So they can't hide it. They might want to sit on it, but I will confirm it. I know someone who can confirm it for me pretty quickly, which I probably should have done in the past. I just got a lot going on. I'm pretty sure you do. But thank you very much for it. I appreciate the time, Jim. Take care. Bye. Bye. Right, bye. Uh, let's roll. Line number four, caller. You're on the air. Line number four, caller. Yeah, you got me? I got you now. Okay. Patty, calling about the assets of the province. Uh, what do you think is the most valuable asset that Newfoundland has? That's tough question, if not trick question. I suppose, you know, when you go back to the... Uh, to the platitudes, our people are our most valuable asset, but if you're talking about something physical, that's a different question. Uh, I'm going to bring up Churchill Falls. Okay. I believe it's 54% we own. It's a little bit more than that. The CFL Co. owns more than that, more than the April of 60 plus percent. Yeah, I thought Quebec had 36%. They do. Hydro Quebec does. Okay, so I thought there was something else in there. Anyway, that doesn't really matter, but in my opinion, it's the most valuable asset the Newfoundland has. And I find it very suspect that the crowd that's value and everything is the Rothschilds who actually played a very, very active role in the whole development way back in the beginning. So nobody has brought up those shares in in uh, Churchill Falls. Nobody has mentioned it. Uh, Siobhan Cody was on the other day, and the first thing she does is divert to uh, the uh, oil and gas royalties and all that kind of stuff and equity positions. Nobody has said the magic word, Churchill Falls. Okay, so just help me understand exactly the points you're making on this one. What's in that report about Churchill Falls, the Rothschild report? Has that been valued? Has it been looked at as far as us selling some of that off to get out of the crap that we're in? That's the question. Nobody seems to, nobody is whispering even Churchill Falls. So I'm asking you to call out Siobhan Cody or the Premier. Is there anything in that report valuing the shares that the province owns in Churchill Falls? Because I fear that the deal is already made with uh, Trudeau and the the Liberals. We're going to lose a piece of that. What would the Trudeau Liberals have to do with the Churchill Falls project? Well, I think the the latest uh, agreements for going ahead with the offshore, I think that's a bargaining chip. And this review now of the contract in 2041, that review now 
That's what I'm considering to be a softening up of the population of the province. They're going to come out with, well, you know, in 2041, yeah, we got the dam, we got no way to send power across. I think that whole exercise to soften up the population, to try and market this whole deal of losing some of Churchill Falls is not so bad a thing because of the position we're in. I don't think anybody really knows. I don't know. I don't know, and I don't think many people do know the full implications of 2041. And just for the uh, accuracy of ownership, CFL Co. owns 65.8%, Hydro uh, Quebec owns 34.2%. And, you know, you make mention of, well, there's no way to get the power out of there. The fact of the matter is, that's true. The transmission assets are owned in full by Hydro-Quebec, so there's got to be... I know people think that the province of Quebec and Hydro-Quebec are the boogeyman and we cannot trust them, we cannot do business with them, but if we take that stance, there'll be no business done because if you can't get the power out of there, the power is completely worthless. But you said the magic word. Nobody knows. Nobody knows, and that's why I think, you know, striking all these task that's forces... Hey, that's, that's, that's how we got in the position we're in now. Nobody knew what they were up to. The inquiry approved that. Oh, with Moscratch, absolutely. Uh, there was information, important information withheld from all of us. The the 2041 panel, like there's all kinds of task force that have been struck that are, you know, kind of eye rollers. What are we doing? When, in fact, this one I think is important because we don't really know what we're talking about here. And unless the general public is given some information, and there's good people on that committee, you know, with a different experience in law, in business, and hydro, all, all through the gamut, we need to know what we're talking about. Because some people, I believe, think that 2041 is the panacea. Everything is over. We are home free in 2041. Are we? I don't know. It'd be nice to know. Yeah. No, no problem with that. But I just think it's a softening up process. And uh, I fear that the, the Williams government and everybody else that came after us is keeping everything. We're in, the, we're in the blank. We don't have any information to work on, and they're not being truthful. Well, one thing I can tell you finance, is the, the issue of quid- comes on. <clears throat> what? I said, when the Minister of Finance comes on and she just alludes to her debt of $17 billion, well, I think she's forgetting about what we owe for Muscara Falls and what we owe for the uh, pensions and, the, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's up around, I believe it's over 44 $45 billion we owe, right? Well, that's the number Moya Green uses. And, again, another important point there is what exactly is involved in that number? It's not exactly dicta- or, pardon me, itemized out so that we know 100% what she's talking about. But Dave Williams just whispered in my ear that Siobhan Cody is actually coming on this show after the 11 o'clock news. I don't, there's obviously a lot of areas to cover. But we can talk about uh, Churchill Falls because, of course, it's a valuable asset. It's about 5,400 megawatts of power compared Compare that to Muskrat, which is 864 or 846 megawatts, so it's a big one. At Gull Island, some 2,200-odd megawatts. Then Darren King yesterday says he thinks that there's still lots of plans afoot to proceed with Gull Island, which is, oh boy, you know, now that we're still dealing with what's happening at Muskrat, I don't know, man. I just don't know. Yeah, that's the problem. Nobody seems to know. Anyway, that's just my thought. I, I think we're going to lose it. I think... Uh, the, the Williams government started it, and the end result is we're going to lose a chunk of that. 
I don't know. What is worth? Uh, you know, there, if there is an upside financially to renegotiate something associated with uh, 2041 in the Upper Churchill, well, let's talk about it. And the issue or the concept of quid pro quo for the uh, final approval of Beta Nord, uh, I personally asked that question directly to Minister Andrew Parsons. No, with no big flowery talk in it, I simply said, was there any quid pro quo regarding anything hydro with the approval for Beta Nord or anything else? He says, no. Now, I can, we can only asked him and looked him in the face. Every member of the media covering the most recent budget was there and he quite simply looked at us all and said no, no such thing. So, anyway, I guess we'll just keep asking. Okay, buddy. Have a good day. You too. Appreciate the time. Take good care. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, when we come back, we're speaking with you. Well, welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Gary, you're on the air. Come on. It's been a while since we had a chat. Uh, I'm going to talk about the notwithstanding clause that was brought up in the House of Commons yesterday by the uh, Bloc Quebecois Party, the Bloc. And yesterday, uh, it was like a hornet's nest going on between the Prime Minister and the Bloc regarding the issues in Quebec, and I'll tell you, uh, holy mackerel. Just one second, Gary. What was the Bloc talking about notwithstanding? About what? What issue? Well, there was some comments made about the we should maybe use the notwithstanding clause, and Trudeau, I guess, is trying to get rid of that now. And I thought, well, mm-hmm. it, it, uh, it made me uh, think about a... Well, a couple of months ago, I watched a documentary on the notwithstanding clause and all of that era of Pierre Trudeau and everything and getting the Constitution and bringing stuff back from uh, uh, um, the Queen, you know, and bringing everything over here and get our charter and everything set up. Not a holy miracle that uh, there's something going on, and I'm not sure what it is, but I remember one clear thing about that documentary was the Premier of Alberta, uh, Peter Lougheed, at the time, uh, before Pierre L. Trudeau can go over to Europe and see the Queen and bring everything back over here, the notwithstanding clause was set in place, and that was basically to protect the provinces, in a nutshell, that there would not be what uh, you call complete control of Ottawa over all jurisdictions in Canada. Well, it's been invoked in the province of Quebec in 1982. It's in the charter. It's Section 33. Um, uh, so who, who says someone's trying to get rid of a section of the charter? Well, that was part of the question period yesterday in the House of Commons. Holy mackerel, what's going on now? And, uh, uh, and you know, I caught part of it, and uh, I thought, you know, this is too important. So something to keep an eye on, Patty, is that uh, that's why I'm calling you today. We need to keep an eye on what is going on in the House of Commons with that now. I'm going to try to catch the question period today to see what's going on. I just caught part of it, and I thought, what in tarnation is going on now with our Prime Minister? But the federal government has never invoked the notwithstanding clause. Never. No, no, the provinces can do that to protect their jurisdictions. Yeah, but That's it's, what the it's, it's, notwithstanding you know, clause is basically for. It was sort of like Ottawa... Uh, you can't uh, become a dictatorship, basically, and have complete control over every jurisdiction in Canada. The provinces have certain duties that they have. Your uh, previous caller, you know, uh, we're, we're left in the dust here. There's something going on. I don't know what it is, but this ideology of the prime minister 
uh, of just uh, emergencies act for example and uh, now there's questions there big questions on that it never shouldn't have been invoked but he won't come forward and so give the information to the uh, opposition side so they can review it. it it's kept we're in the dark. Yeah, that we're in that the dark again. that review is not going to be good enough because they're talking about the convoy and their protest and their behavior, their comments, as opposed to government's consideration of invoking the Emergencies Act, which is absolutely as important as anything that happened on the ground outside of Parliament. We should understand much more about why the government did what they did, wh- where they got a legal opinion. I mean, the the police say that they did not ask for it, even though at the exact same breath they were asking for more resources and ability, so they're splitting a pretty fine hair there. But I'm not really sure what you mean about dictatorship and notwithstanding clause. The legal... Well, well, it, just it, hold it, on, it, Gary. The legalese around it is, is in spite of. So it's to allow a province, you know, like they did in 82, is to prevent someone from bringing a legal action to, you know, suspension uh, for a law that violates freedoms, rights, equality, those types of things. I mean, Pierre Polyev was talking about invoking the uh, notwithstanding clause on the federal front, which has never happened before, but I don't know who's talking about getting rid of it. Like, I certainly, well, I try to keep my ear to the ground, but I've never heard anything like that. Well, it's uh, from what I could gather yesterday, listening to the House of Commons question period, the liberal side of the House wants to get rid of it. Really? And to me, at that, I thought, man, it's, uh, that's why I thought I'd better give you a call to keep we need to be, uh, maybe you can uh, uh, check out some sources or whatever, but we need to keep on top of that because I kind of think, God, what is going on now? You know, it's like a hornet's net was brought up yesterday in the House of Commons. What in tarnation is going on now? You know, it, I mean, it, it's just a question, Patty, but uh, if we don't speak about what went on yesterday, I haven't got all the sources in front of me to retrack and tell you exactly what who said what yesterday but it, it's there i mean it was aired yesterday and i thought what in tarnation is going on now and that was the question what is going on now what 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 behind the scenes is going on now and that's why i thought well i'm gonna call patty because i thought you know what he has a pretty good knack of getting some sources, checking into things, and maybe you can update us on that. Well, I can figure it out, but, I mean, no federal government is interested in reopening the charter. I mean, that is, you talk about a hornet's nest, that would be the epitome of it on the national scene. Uh, I'll see what I can, I, I mean, there's no problem for me to get some of the comments that were recorded in the House of Commons yesterday. I try not to watch a whole lot of question period. I, I find it too frustrating. I know you do, and, and that's good for you, but uh, I thought this was... I thought okay, let me figure it out, Gary. Yeah, so anyhow, Patty, uh, the thing is, it's been brought to the attention of the listeners here as well, you know, that, uh, you know, we better keep an eye on what's going on right now because something... Uh, it just doesn't seem right. I mean, but, yeah, but Gary, I'll tell you what, there's some built-in protections in the Charter anyway. The amount of support you need provincially is just off the charts. I think it's like seven or eight of the provinces have to be on side with the change. That's never going to happen. We can't get anyone to agree on anything. So that type of consensus, th- that's just not happening. I mean, there's also, 
you know, it becomes referendum type business. And I think the threshold is like 67% that people have to vote in support of something which is not going to happen. You know, there's all kinds of talk about the World Economic Forum. There's all kinds of talk about Bill Gates and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Man, changing the, the, uh, the, the clause in the Charter is a monumental effort that I don't think anyone in their right mind thinks is worth it. And anyone in their right mind who thinks they're going to get uh, seven or eight provinces to be on side with any of these changes, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, uh, we can't yeah. agree on the most I, fundamental I, issues in this country so yeah I know. I, I know that part there i thought the provinces uh, that you know you wouldn't be able to get that with the provinces sir like you know that would be the hitting the nail between with the hammer you know that that's the last straw mr uh, prime minister you've gone too far yeah uh, he people can think and say that stuff all they want but i mean to envision a place where I can't remember if it's seven or eight provinces. I can't remember the right number. But that level of support... I'm pretty sure you're right with that. Madness. There's seven, eight provinces. Okay. I think I have to agree with it. I'm pretty sure that was... Appreciate uh, the time, Gary. Thanks for this. Okay, thanks, Patty. Take, Take care. care. You too. Bye-bye. Let's go ahead and take a break for the news. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back. Hi, let's go. Line number three. Good morning, Roger. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay, man. How you doing? Good, boy. Good. I'm just wanting to speak about accessibility and uh, apparently a national action to awareness week. And I'm just wondering, like, we have national action awareness week, but what do we do? We we got we need to. Uh, Making more, more like what I'm trying to say. What is the purpose? Like uh, I'm telling you my story. I I, I have a cerebral palsy and I've been able to walk and run up until a couple of years now. Now I use scooter. Since I used a scooter, I've been bad for 50 percent of places that I used to go. Like I can't go to a lot of restaurants. If I could get in there, I can't get to the bathroom. And when I'm with friends, I got to make sure where they're going. I can't just take it on. Um, um, that little, like, we we all know people that are in action or they they become in a wheelchair, and we all feel sad for them. Why are we sad? Is it because now they can't go into the places they used to go? Why is that? It's a good question, Roger. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that people are not, I don't know, they just feel like they uh, don't want my money. I get my money just as good as anyone else, but I'm restricted now to 50% of the patients. Anyway, and I... I challenge anyone when they 
go to a restaurant or go into a facility, look around and say, if I was in an accident tomorrow and in a wheelchair, would I be here? Could I get here? Right. Absolutely. I mean, it's the conversations we have with like Nancy Reed at the coalition is if if yeah. you are not a person with one type of disability or another or someone in your family or your social circles, then you probably don't see the hurdles that people like yourself face all the time. And so if we have a better understanding, because if we're talking about all the disabilities that people can think of, some 20% of the population is dealing with one disability or more. So that, and you said, you know, how you spend your money, would I go to that business? If I'm a business person, I'm acknowledging that 20% of the population needs some accommodations for their disability and I'm going to deal with it. And so access, whether it be simply to get in the door and or use of the washroom facilities or whatever else until we can all identify them and understand where the hurdles are we're probably not going to do a great job dealing with the issue so that's the important point that you make there roger i think right right i agree i think you got the you got it but some people don't like for example another thing was I had a gift ticket for the dream home. Okay. If I, I, first thing I said, with my luck now, I win that I can't get in it. <laughs> right? Because I don't know why they never used the universal design to make it. Accessible for everyone. <laughs> that's, <Thank> a, <laughs> that's pretty good. Just your luck. You'll go ahead and win it and can't get in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I spoke to Paul about it, and Paul Snow, and I, I said, Well, you got $50,000, you could change whatever you want after. But, but that. But if you build it before, you wouldn't have to spend that fifty thousand dollars. And it costs less right. if you do it when you're originally constructing a home or uh, a public service building or whatever the case may be. Universal design, absolutely. Yep, yep. Roger, yep. I look forward to seeing you around. I appreciate the time. Yeah, all right, then. Thank you. Take good care. All right, bye. There we go. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Siobhan Cody is a Liberal member for St. John's West. She's the Deputy Premier and the Minister of Finance, President of the Treasury Board, and joins us on line number one. Good morning, Minister Cody. You're on the air. Lovely to hear your voice this morning, Patty. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How about you? Fabulous, thank you. Let's start with one of the most recent pieces of business, and it's now the fact that West White Rose Extension has been greenlit by Suncor and Sonovus. I guess I should say Sonovus and Suncor. There is a floating royalty regime in an effort to de-risk the project. So the royalty says now that we'll make more royalties when it trades over $90 per barrel U.S. and less if it trades at $75 U.S. per barrel. Give us an example of the difference between the two and dollars and cents <laughs> and or percentage. Yeah, good morning, uh, Patty. Uh, yes, there has been a slight change in the in the royalty program for West White Rose. 
um, there is more now similar to what the Terra Nova project, the, the newest Terra Nova project. So they basically de-risked, and, and of course I'll allow um, Minister Parsons, who's responsible now for the oil and gas industry, to get into more details. But basically we've we've been able to make a, a change in the royalty regime that allows for West White Rose that if the if the amount if the price of oil dips below a certain level, uh, they pay a, a, a different they pay a different royalty fee than they currently do. But if it's above a certain level, they'll pay more. So they've, we've kind of de-risked the project for them. As you know, this is a late-stage expansion on the West White Rose field, and we're just glad to see that there will be a you know tremendous number of people going back to work uh, today and tomorrow and the next and in the next few weeks to continue that project. It's a good project. For for the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. What's the percentage uh, difference between uh, the royalty over $90 and below $75? I don't have that off the top of my head. I'll certainly give you a call back with that. I wasn't, I, I didn't have, I don't have that in front of me right this moment, but I'll get that for you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Minister Cody, does the Rothschild report suggest divesting our oil and gas assets? Certainly one of the things that we've asked the Rothschild, uh, Rothschild to do was to consider whether or not we should divest of the equity portion of what we have in offshore Newfoundland and Labrador. As you know, we have uh, a number of projects offshore that the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, including the West White Rose extension, has a, a portion of the equity, meaning that we're an owner of that project. Um, this is above uh, the royalty programs and above the benefits programs. We actually bought a piece of the of the uh, of the project itself. So we had asked Rothschild to review whether or not uh, we were maximizing our re return on that that particular investment, and they have given their uh, their opinion and their view on on that uh, on the uh, particular assets we have offshore. So certainly Rothschild has done a review and analysis of what we would gain if we did sell the equity in our offshore uh, versus you know if with the cash flow that we would receive if we continued on. As you know, Patty, Newfoundland and Labrador still has a deficit. This year, it's uh, you know $351 million, and that's down. I've only been finance minister less than two years, about 18, 19 months now, and we've been able to take that deficit from $1.8 billion down to $351 million. But, you know, we still have a tremendous debt. We have $17 billion in debt. So, you know, the consideration, of course, is whether or not uh, we're, we're getting the best return on that investment that we've made on behalf of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. We're still continuing to invest in that in that equity. As you know, with West White Rose restarting, that means that uh, uh, the assets which are held by uh, Newfoundland and Labrador Hydro through Oil Co., uh, we, you know, we're going to have to pay for the continued development of that of that uh, of that expansion. So, you know, Rothschild, you give us their opinion on whether or not uh, it is something that we want to make sure that we're maximizing the assets on. Uh, you said that we wouldn't release information based on commercial sensitivities, and of course, people expect those to be redacted. But those portions of the report that are not commercially sensitive, we're not going to get to see those either. Help me understand what the downside is, whether to protect the bidding process and or commercial sensitivities, while not simply telling us whether or not they recommended divesting our equity stake, whether or not they recommended selling off the assets at, at the NLC and or motor vehicle and or bull arm and or marble mountain, because eventually we're going to know if you're going to do it because you're going to go to tender. So what's the risk in just telling us if it jibes with the Green Report? 
Well, certainly we want to make sure that we don't harm our competitive or financial position of the province, and we certainly don't want to diminish any potential value of, it, of by disclosing any information to outside parties that may be interested in, in acquisition of any of these assets. But won't they know that you're going to sell it when you go to tender? So to tell us that that's what we're, the road we're heading down, what's, what's the risk associated with simply saying, yes, we're going to divest this or sell that? Well, we have not made that determination at this point in time. Rothschild has delivered the report last month to the people of the province, to the to, to government. We're reviewing that and determining how we're going to best move forward, and then we'll make some determinations and come to the people of the province if we need to do any more uh, you know, consultation at that point in time, depending on how we're moving forward on any particular asset, we will do so. And uh, any information that you know is, is required at that point in time will be brought forward as well. But releasing the Rothschild report in its in its totality, we're concerned about the, as you said, the commercial interests. We don't want to harm any competitive or financial uh, position at all. And I don't think people anticipate or expect the province to shoot itself in the foot on that front. Is the Upper Churchill part of the considerations that Rothschild and company looked at? Is the Upper Churchill yeah. as part of the, those considerations? Well, they looked at all of our assets, but not particularly um, the Upper Churchill per se. They looked at all the assets in the province. I mean, everything, you know, we, we asked them to do a broad review of the assets in the province, and that's one of the assets in the province. But they didn't specifically look, you know, at, we have a, we just announced, as you know, a committee uh, called the, the, for the 2041 uh, panel, uh, called the 2041 panel, and they are going to look at, uh, well, we, what we'll do with the Upper Churchill as we move forward. I just want to answer, uh, I, I don't know if I've, I've kind of, we the prov I want to go back to the West White Rose the West White Rose if I may, because you did ask that and I sure. didn't have the information. So we're going to receive uh, a couple of things under that, under that uh, new change in the royalty. So as I said, improved higher uh, commodity price environment. We get uh, we get a, a, a good share of it, and we're protect and we're protecting a little bit on the lower side of things. But we're also going to receive a two hundred million dollar royalty abandonment credit, which is important because, of course, uh, in ten to fifteen years' time, when the, when the, that project is nearing its end of life, we want to make sure that we have some some money to be able to assist with the abandonment costs as well. And I think this is important. $100 million to, an, to establish a green transition fund. So having that money to be able to transition, of course, away from uh, you know some of the some of the higher car higher carbon projects to lower carbon projects will be important. Okay, just so I understand, so the two hundred million dollar end of life fund. So if indeed it costs more than that for our equity position, which I think is four point five percent in this field, if it goes beyond two hundred million, we still owe our our four point five percent of remediation costs in total, right? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, and that's why you know that's why I think it's important that we consider all of our asset mix in the province and determine how and when we want to sell those to the best benefit of the people of the province. Patty, one of the things I wanted to, to mention to the people of the province while, uh, while, while I have you on the phone is that yesterday, of course, the House of Assembly finalized uh, the spring legislation, including the budget. So all of the, uh, all the pieces of the budget, all the review of the budget has been finalized, and we have now um, moved forward on our budget. And uh, as you know, it's, it was a you know it's a, 
a, a lot of money in that budget, $9.4 billion in, in expenditures, including things like health and education. We had to put extra money towards that, money for uh, infrastructure projects, $567 million in infrastructure, uh, a lot of money towards health care and the changes to health care and the improvements to health care that are required, money for uh, the education. And, of course, you know there's a 1,000 new children in school, which is a, a good thing. But we've also been able to put a lot of money and uh, towards the cost of living and concerns of the people of the province. It's a very, you know, these are extraordinary times, and we've had to take some extraordinary measures. And um, we're continuing to, to, you know, consider all the things that we can do to help the people of the province. These are very difficult times, and we recognize. Let's talk about the carbon tax. So now it's up around 11 cents. The most recent uh, add-on was 2.2 cents. That happened on the 1st of May. The thought behind it was that that would be set aside for an earmark for very specific projects, whether it be alternative forms of energy or what have you. What exactly is it being set aside for? Well, there's a tremendous number of uh, projects under the um, early, uh, sorry under environment and climate change that they make investments in the low carbon economy fund. For example, there are investments, as you know, that were announced in budget for um, money for people to transition from oil, uh, from oil heat in their homes. There's a five thousand dollars available for that. If you're if you're utilizing oil heat, you can transfer now to electricity. There's money there, and that's stackable against with the federal government. There's money to transition, for example, from uh, uh, vehicles that use uh, fuel and oil uh, and, sorry, fuel and gas uh, to uh, electric electric vehicles as we move forward. There's a two, I think it's $2,500 towards that and that's stackable again with the federal government. So there's a number of programs to assist in the environment, including the Low Carbon uh, Environment Fund, that help people, uh, you know, transition in this this, uh, new emerging green world mm-hmm. um, to uh, make sure that we are, we, we are lowering the carbon that we're, we're producing at all times. Yeah, and the transition from uh, internal combustion also includes hybrids, which is $1,500 rebate. So that initial five-point plan, and there was the seniors' benefit income supplement and otherwise, and then the two you mentioned with uh, transition from oil to electricity and or moving on to an electric vehicle or a hybrid. That pot, that pot of money was about $140 million. But this, this has been the reference. Transition from oil to electricity or fuel, uh, fossil fuel driven vehicle to electric vehicle, people who are struggling in this province, they're not considering that. That's not even on their agenda. It's the modern day equivalent of let them eat cake. How can we include that as a cost of living mitigation when so many other people who are struggling, that's not even something they're thinking about. That's the furthest thing from their mind, a $5,000 bill and more to transition or to buy an electric vehicle. How is that included in cost of living mitigation? So we have a number of, of uh, cost of living investments that we've made, both short term, long term, as you talked about the transition uh, as well. So in the short term, we have, for example, we've lowered, as you know, as of uh, today, the, uh, the, the provincial tax on gasoline. We have a one-time payment coming this fall to, to supplement the cost of furnace oil. We've provided a benefit to, to those receiving income support. We gave them a check in, in April. We've eliminated the 15% retail sales tax on home insurance, a reduction in the fees for a registration uh, for personal, uh, sorry, for pa- passenger vehicles. On the longer term, we've, you know, done a, an increase to the income supplement. We've done an increase in the seniors benefit. We have uh, in, done an increase in the prenatal infant nutrition uh, supplement, just an expansion of the bus program. I'm just r- rhyming them off to name a few. Sure. But there's also one thing that's very important for people. 
those that are considering, and there are a lot of people now considering new vehicles, and we wanted to support them in their decision-making as we transition, because everybody recognizes that climate change is real and that we have to do something about it. So for those that are considering, and I agree with you, not everyone can afford a new vehicle right now, but those that are considering it, here's support to help them with the transition. So I've named off you know, some of the short and longer-term measures that we're taking for those that are most vulnerable, but there are people, and it might be you, it might be your family, who are considering their next vehicle, and this is support to help you in your transition to lower carbon, and that's helping with climate change. I know the government's intention is to encourage healthier choices with the implementation on September 1st of the tax on sugary drinks. So we won't go into the exemptions of what's included, but... You know, I get the intention, but at the exact same time, you're saying that the province is expected to raise some $9 million annually. Does that maybe say the quiet parts out loud, that you're not sure it's going to work? Because if we're going to raise $9 million, then encouraging healthy choices might not be the outcome. Like, I, I would say like cigarette tax. We want, we, I would just as soon not collect that in revenues. This is about choice, and we're trying to drive your choice to being, you. if you wish to buy a sugar-sweetened a sugar sweetened beverage, you certainly can. It'll just cost you a little bit more in taxation, rather than you can make a different choice, either either a, um, a diet, soft drink, or a low, uh, you know, there's lots of, uh, of uh, waters now available that are carbonated or, or that have flavors in them as well. So we're, what we're doing is making sure that we are uh, helping people make the right choices. The monies that are collected in this are going back into the community and back into programming, back into Kids Eat Smart, back into uh, you know uh, school lunch programs, back into um, all kinds of different what I'm going to call community supports uh, that, ha- that, that really do focus on active and healthy living. And we think that this is a very, very, this is important to do. We've got the support of the Canadian Cancer Society, the Pediatric Society, the Heart and Stroke Foundation. I mean, uh, uh, the majority, I guess, of associations across the country uh, that, that are focused on healthy outcomes and healthy living, uh, the Canadian Diabetes Association, for example, all are supportive of this type of taxation. Now, it's about choice. You don't have to pay the taxation. You can choose a different type of of soft drink. You can choose a different beverage. And that's what this is all about. Mm -hmm. And if we collect less 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 tax, then so be it. That's, it. This is not a taxation measure. This is about ensuring that people are having to make an informed uh, uh, choice. And no different than when, you know, taxation started on cigarettes and started on vaping, for example. It's about it's about drawing attention to behaviors and, and making informed choice. Uh, last one. So you mentioned healthy lifestyle, and that would include not only your diet, but, you know, not being a sedentary person like so many of us are. So it's the f- physical activity tax credit. It's a tax Tax credit up to $2,000 per family. But once again, you know, whether it be focused on flexibility, balance, muscular strength, endurance, cardiovascular, for families who can't afford to put their child in one of these programs at this moment in time, they're not going to be able to get in because it's the upfront cost as opposed to looking down the road for a tax credit. Any consideration to points of registration relief? Because then I think more and more children will be participating in these very healthy lifestyle programs versus the families that can't afford it. A tax credit is just pie in the sky. Well, we certainly do support a lot of community endeavors and events. 
um, we I'd have to take it you know specifically by by specifically as to how we how we uh, support the community programming but we do support community entrance and availability of 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 different programming you know swimming pools for example or or making sure that there's you know fields for uh, for soccer and supports for for those types of uh, uh, those types of events so there is a lot of support that goes in there for community activities if you're specifically thinking about subsidizing enrollment costs uh, that's something that we can consider uh, you know maybe for the next budget but uh, but we do support the community obviously in, in, in making sure that there are you know fields and 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 uh, available uh, available infrastructure to participate in sport I appreciate you making time there's always a lot to discuss and maybe we'll <laughs> do this again in the future thank you minister always happy to speak to you take care bye bye as the deputy premier the minister of finance Siobhan Cody uh, let's take a break for the news when we come back one of my favorites uh, actress writer producer dancer I'm just going to guess but Ruth has thrown her directorial hat into a new ring the opera Ruth Lawrence after this don't go away your VOCM mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy 530 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM Welcome back to the program. Well, we're always looking for a new challenge. Hey, join us on line number three is writer, actor, producer, director, Ruth Lawrence. Good morning, Ruth. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. And I have been known to dance, but no one's paid me for that yet. <laughs> Everyone likes to cut a rug. Uh, so, Ruth, <laughs> you've obviously got a wealth of experience in a variety of different roles in the arts community, but now taking on a new challenge. You've directed plenty of film, but never directed an opera. And here we go. I would never have done this, actually, and I wouldn't have even thought of it if Cheryl Hickman, who's the artistic director at Opera on the Avalon, didn't approach me and say, hey, how would you like to direct an opera? I mean, it's a dream. It's been on the bucket list. Uh, I'm an opera fan, but I did not anticipate it coming quite so fast towards me. And I have to tell you, Patty, it's been a true joy and such such a privilege to be able to do this opera, which is the first one that that opera on the Avalon has presented in two years uh, live, and uh, we've just been having a ball, and it's just a, a, a beautiful production. I can't even imagine how different it is, because if you're on set doing a film or some TV, and you'll have a director of photography, and you'll block things out, but of course, in the opera, it's as much about the mood and the emotion and the music as it is about blocking things out, so how different is it? Well, it sounds like you already knew going into it as much as I did. I, when I, it's true. When I went in, I, I said, okay, I'm doing this. I'm a newbie. Everyone there had more experience than me. But luckily for me, I was so fortunate that Cheryl paired me with their resident conductor, Judith Yan. And after a day and a half of being in rehearsal with Judith, I went, okay, yeah, we're on the same page. She works in the very same way that I do. Uh, I mean, she's dealing with you know all the technicalities of the music and the score, but we came from the same place in the heart, and I I was really thrilled and appreciated uh, working with her in partnership because it was just it, she just made the process so much easier for me, and I, I I don't think she would that was her intention, but it did. Like I really learned so much from her in that first week, and all of the performers were just so easy to work with. Everyone at Opera on the Avalon just made it a seamless transition. So yeah, it's. It is a it's a perfect partnership, really, because uh, you know Judith is responsible for the orchestra, the singing, translating the music and interpreting it, and then my job is to interpret the text and block it and work with the designers to bring the whole visual elements together. So it really 
is a complete collaboration. It was, um, yeah, I, I, in in much the same way that film is, I was surprised to see that this is actually the way also that opera works. I'm a little surprised, to be honest with you, because he would be intimately familiar with the set for movies or television, and, you know, the mm-hmm. continuity producer and the DP and everyone, and you've been on either side of the camera in a variety of roles. So is it, in your opinion, and or the folks you're collaborating with, to have a, a real deep understanding of the music and the emotion that the music is, is, is intended to draw to be an effective director? Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I think that's a really good question, and I went into it thinking, oh my gosh, I just have such limited musical knowledge. I did music in theater school, and I can basically read music but the truth is in the same way that a director does not have to know everything about how a cameraman or a DOP does their work a director of photography does their work you have to I have to be able to translate what it is I'm looking for emotionally visually to the people around me and then they have the talent and the know how to make that happen so I express what I'm looking for and then the performers the designers Judith and and the orchestra brings that back to me it's incredible it it, it was the same process just in a very different discipline we have produced some tremendous opera singers, whether it be the Shelley Nevilles or David Pomeroy's of the world, and there's another big tall fellow who his name eludes me at this moment in time. I, su- <laughs> I, su- I suppose I should have started with the question of what opera are you doing? Well, we're doing an opera called Three Decembers, and it's by Jake Heggie and Jean Shear. The, uh, it was composed by Jake Heggie, and the libretto is by Jean Shear. It's based on a series of essays written by Terrence McNally for an AIDS fundraiser in New York, and it takes place over three Decembers, 1986, 1996, 2006, and it's really a a single mother who is living and reliving and dealing with the traumas of the past with her two grown children. Uh, They've lost their father slash husband tragically, and now over the course of their adult lives, secrets start becoming revealed and all of this is set against the tremendous heartbreak of the AIDS epidemic that in 1986 in San Francisco was just beginning to grip that population in in just a heartbreaking way so it's quite it's quite a roller coaster when people think of opera we, we talked about this one day. People think of Bugs Bunny as their first introduction to opera is, you know, the Barbara Seville and the sure. Mary Jessica and, and seeing Bugs Bunny conducting. And opera is has come so far since those days of our imagination of what it actually is. This one is completely written in English. It has jokes. You're laughing all the way through it. You're crying. And for me, that journey of emotion as you started this interview by saying is really what opera is all about it's you know it's big it's it's huge it it deals with big themes and and you get big emotions and it's just just a beautiful beautiful uh, script to uh, and score to 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 play with and dig inside it's been a real pleasure i suppose i should add to the list of singers uh peter barrett to tony evans uh, of the world who are extraordinary in their own right and you know The Barber of Seville, I don't think the original score includes the Bugs Bunny lyric, Come into my shop, let me cut your mop. I was going to quote that. Everyone knows it. Everyone knows it. 
everyone knows it. And I mean, it's funny because when we think about that, like that's one of the things that I think is really interesting about what Up on the Avalon's doing is because it really is saying this is accessible. If you like music, if you like musical theater, if you like Looney Tunes, come and see this show because you will understand it. Like the days of you know people feeling like oh that's inaccessible to me. I don't know all the references. I don't understand what's happening on stage. That's gone. We still have story titles for those who need them. But like the other night we did an invited dress rehearsal and afterwards people said, oh my gosh, that was so beautiful. I had no idea I was going to come and understand and appreciate every single word. And I was like, yeah, that's the difference. We, we had certain expectations and I think this play really breaks that down and says, no, come in, come see the show. It'll be, it's a beautiful step into the world of opera and the, and all the beauty that it has to offer. Look, uh- I would not consider myself an uh, myself an opera buff, but every time I've gone to see one, like for instance, mm-hmm. sitting through David Pomeroy in an aria, your hair is standing on on end. It's just Absolutely. really truly remarkable. And of course, some of the origins of opera in this uh, province, uh, Georgia Sterling. Uh, these names just keep popping in my head as you and I talk and I listen. Exactly. So, when does your performance debut and hit the stage? Where and when? And details for tickets and what have you, Ruth? It opens tonight at seven thirty at the LSPU Hall, and it runs just till. Saturday, so just three performances, but they do start at 7.30, so it's a little bit earlier than the regular show time, but it runs just 90 minutes, you're in there, there's no intermission, you you get taken on a beautiful, joyous ride through this world, and then you're out in time to go and have a drink or head home for an early night to bed. Uh, break a leg. Thank you so much, Patty. Thanks for talking to me. My and pleasure. thanks for the Bugs Bunny reference. I love it. Bye. <laughs> thanks, Ruth. Bye-bye. Bye. There we go. A uh, little local opera action. Can't beat it. Let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Oh, am I on the line? You are on the air, ma'am. Yes. Thank you. Oh, Penny, hi. I just want to say a special thank you to a good Samaritan who picked up a lost cell phone yesterday and contacted us. And I'm very grateful to that person, and I'm sure he knows who he is. Yeah, that's good, honest people still out there. How do they know how to contact you? Uh, apparently, my number showed up on the cell phone, and he did call. And to be honest with you, I didn't... Um, I didn't want to take the call first, and I hung up on because I thought it was kind of a prank call. Somebody calling and say, "Come and meet me at a certain place." I got a cell phone, you know. Yeah. And I'm a senior citizen, <laughs> and I didn't want to um, do that. So, but he did call another number and made contact with someone else on the phone. So. Well, good on him, because basically, if I lose my phone, it's of no value to anyone else. There's no reason why you wouldn't try at least to reunite the phone with the rightful owner. Well, some people might try to sell it, you know, and sure. there are a lot of contact numbers and everything on it, you know. You lose your cell phone, you lose a lot of stuff these days. Oh, I'd be lost. You know, I, I, I admit, so. I'd be yeah. absolutely lost. So you yeah. say you were wary of maybe having to meet this person who just told you that they had your cell phone. How did the yeah. uh, transaction take place? What happened? Uh, well, I, uh, I said, I'm sorry, you got the wrong number, and I hung up on the person. <laughs> but I was talking to that person after it was a man. And, um, but there was something that he said, and uh, I, I thought that um, it was a prank call, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't say what it was now that it was, but uh, something that he said made me think. And there's always people trying to scam seniors. So, and so many calls do come up on my phone. 
from time to time and I don't really answer them. But I did answer that one that last evening and um, and I do wish I had to handle call better, but I didn't at the time. But someone else, you did get a hold of someone else, so you're trying very hard to find the owner for the phone. Well, better safe than sorry, right? You know, and I don't dispute yeah. that people should take every precaution when answering the phone or opening an email because you just never know. But uh, good on that person for doing what they did to get your phone back to you. Yes, and for all the people who really do that, you know, we're very thankful and grateful. Absolutely. Okay? Yep. Thank you very much, Patty. Thank you. You are good. Great. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. There's still lots of good people out there, isn't there? You know, I saw, let me see if I can find this particular photograph. Because there is a lot of, and I think justifiable cause for people to be wary and worried and anxious and all the rest of it. But I saw what I thought was a pretty insightful comment coming from uh, one of the listeners this morning. So, and this is not only about kindness and honesty and what have you. This person says, is Boyd, do you think the Newfoundland Labrador public is becoming less appreciative of doctors, police, firemen, nurses, teachers, social workers, and it's causing huge problems? It goes on to say that those that are not appreciated do not perform. That goes for everyone. Are we letting negative media control how we feel about everything? It's a fair question to be asking. You know, maybe it's just the echo chamber that is social media where it's easy enough to pile on when people are, you know, one one group of professionals or another, you know, uh, certainly law enforcement is in the crosshairs these days about the type of respect they're due versus the respect they get. And when someone steps outside the bounds of regulations and or the law, we should deal with them harshly. But I think that's an important question that, you know, Boyd is putting forward. His... While the worries pile on, I would think, and part of this is human nature, and part of this is probably part and parcel with the pandemic, how long it's drawn on and what it's meant for all of us, is all of a sudden, almost everything becomes so easy to be twisted into something completely negative and a reason for people to lash out. You know, it used to be built-in respect. If you had on the white lab coat, that was it. If you had on the uh, police officer's uniform, respect was flowing your way. Teachers held on a pedestal. Now I think we've kind of strayed a little bit away from it. And maybe, just maybe, it's about what we see every day if you're a social media user. Because what you might be willing to think or to say in mixed company or to a friend or to a foe it's probably not reflective of how you behave when you're sitting behind the keyboard and the bravado that goes with it. Whether it be the tone and tenor of emails, and I mean, I know that some people send me emails that are really quite crooked, extremely cross, wildly harsh. I don't know if that's the way they are in real life, or you just get caught up in it. All of a sudden, your brain's relations with your, with your fingertips, maybe the synapses are not snapping at uh, the regular pace, and consequently, frustration takes over, and you get really quite crooked. And I think absolutely the same thing happens on social media, where the dopamine release with having your mean tweet or Facebook post or Instagram or TikTok... It just spurs on more and more of that type of negativity because all of a sudden the positivity that is not there and is not being rewarded is very easily replaced with the the thrill some people get with having something liked even though it was completely mean, maybe completely untoward, but all of a sudden that's where we find ourselves. That's what unfortunately is going on. Let's check in on our social media. Whether you like me, loathe me, listen to the show or don't, Keep the tweets coming. It's all right. No skin off my back. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at vocm.com. 
And we will indeed pick up. Dave, you want to zip us out with a bit of Huey Lewis in the news? All right. So we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning. Right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.